Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover thrombocytopenia in pregnancy. The normal range of the platelet count in non-pregnant individuals is anywhere from 165 to 410,000. Traditionally, thrombocytopenia in pregnant women has been defined as a platelet count less than 150,000. The laboratory range of platelet counts in pregnant women varies by trimester with a gradual decrease as the pregnancy progresses. Now, the most common manifestations of thrombocytopenia are petechiae, ecchymosis, epistasis, gingival bleeding, and heavy menstrual bleeding. Bleeding into joints usually does not occur. Now, although life-threatening bleeding is uncommon, when it does occur, it is associated with hematuria, gastrointestinal bleeding, and rarely intracranial hemorrhage. Significant bleeding usually is limited to patients with extremely low platelet levels who are undergoing a major surgical intervention. To reduce the risk of spontaneous bleeding, consensus guidelines recommend platelet transfusions in adults with a platelet count less than 10,000 and for individuals undergoing major surgery, a platelet count less than 50,000. Thrombocytopenia is caused by either increased platelet destruction or decreased platelet production. In pregnancy, most cases are due to increased platelet destruction, which can be caused by immunological destruction, abnormal platelet activation, or platelet consumption that is a result of excessive bleeding or exposure to abnormal vessels. Decreased platelet production in pregnancy is less common and it's usually associated with bone marrow disorders or certain nutritional deficiencies. The most common cause of thrombocytopenia during pregnancy is gestational thrombocytopenia, and that accounts for about 80% of cases, so that's a clinical pearl. Gestational thrombocytopenia, also called incidental thrombocytopenia of pregnancy, is by far the most common cause of thrombocytopenia during pregnancy, and it affects anywhere from 5 to 10% of pregnant women. Although its pathogenesis is uncertain, gestational thrombocytopenia may be a result of various processes, including hemodilution and enhanced clearance. There are several characteristics of gestational thrombocytopenia. First, the onset occurs in the mid-second to third trimester, with most cases having a platelet count greater than 75,000. However, some cases have been described which are extreme with counts less than 50,000. Second, women with gestational thrombocytopenia are asymptomatic with no history of bleeding. Thirdly, women with gestational thrombocytopenia have no prior history of thrombocytopenia outside of pregnancy. Fourth, Platelet counts usually return to normal within one to two months postpartum. The incidence of neonatal thrombocytopenia, as determined by cord blood platelet counts in women with gestational thrombocytopenia, has been reported to range from 0.1% up to 1.7%. So, women with gestational thrombocytopenia are not at risk of maternal or fetal hemorrhage or bleeding complications. There are no specific lab tests to confirm gestational thrombocytopenia, and the diagnosis is one of exclusion. Gestational thrombocytopenia should spontaneously resolve after delivery, although, as previously stated, it may take one to two months postpartum. 
Okay, we just stated that gestational thrombocytopenia is responsible for 80% of thrombocytopenic cases in pregnancy. However, preeclampsia is the etiology in anywhere from 5 to 20% of cases of maternal thrombocytopenia, making it the second most common cause of low platelets. During pregnancy, in the presence of new onset hypertension, a platelet count less than 100,000 is a hematological diagnostic criterion for severe preeclampsia. All right, we have to review the possibility of neonatal thrombocytopenia in women with hypertensive disorders. There may be an increased risk of about 1.8 to 2% of thrombocytopenia in neonates of women with thrombocytopenia associated with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. However, the studied infants were delivered before term with no gestational age specified. And remember, 60% of infants that have a birth weight that are small for gestational age and or are premature can have a related risk of neonatal thrombocytopenia just based on gestational age. So other large observational studies of women at term did not note any cases of neonatal thrombocytopenia in women with preeclampsia associated with maternal thrombocytopenia. That means that some studies that showed that neonates were at risk of thrombocytopenia in women with severe preeclampsia, those studies may have been confounded by the premature age of the infants. Once again, according to the college, large observational studies of women at term did not note any cases of neonatal thrombocytopenia in women with preeclampsia associated with maternal thrombocytopenia. All right, when we come back, let's talk about thrombocytopenia with an immunological basis. Thrombocytopenia with an immunological basis during pregnancy can be broadly classified into two disorders. The first is fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia, and the second is maternal primary immune thrombocytopenia, or ITP. This is an autoimmune condition. Fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia has no effect on the woman, but may be responsible for more cases of thrombocytopenia-related intracranial hemorrhage in the child than any other primary maternal thrombocytopenic condition combined. Now, in contrast, immune thrombocytopenia, or ITP, may affect both the woman and the fetus, but with appropriate management, the outcome for both is excellent. So here's a clinical pearl. Remember, the two thrombocytopenic conditions that have an immunological basis include fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia that affects the child and maternal primary ITP that can affect both the mother and the child. Let's concentrate on ITP first. Primary ITP is defined as an acquired immune-mediated platelet disorder characterized by isolated thrombocytopenia in the absence of any obvious initiating or underlying cause of thrombocytopenia. The term secondary ITP is used to include all forms of immune-mediated thrombocytopenia that are due to an underlying disease or to any drug exposure. Regarding maternal ITP, maternal immunoglobulin G antiplatelet antibodies can cross the placenta, placing the fetus and neonate at risk of thrombocytopenia. No relationship between maternal platelet counts at delivery and infant platelet counts at birth have been shown. 
Between 8 and 15% of neonates will be treated for thrombocytopenia based on such factors as platelet count, signs and symptoms of bleeding, or the need for invasive interventions. Now, despite this incidence, the risk of fetal thrombocytopenia associated with maternal ITP resulting in severe hemorrhagic complications is still rare at less than 1%. Now, regarding the diagnosis of ITP, although many individuals with ITP will have elevated levels of platelet-associated antibodies and sometimes circulating antiplatelet antibodies, these assays are not recommended for the routine evaluation of maternal thrombocytopenia, and that's according to the college. Tests for antiplatelet antibodies are nonspecific, poorly standardized, and they're subject to a large degree of interlab variation. Also, gestational thrombocytopenia and ITP cannot be differentiated on the basis of antiplatelet antibody testing. So that's a clinical pearl. Now, if drugs and other medical disorders are excluded, the most likely diagnosis in the first and second trimesters will be gestational thrombocytopenia or ITP. Now, let's briefly discuss the more fetal-affecting fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenic condition. Fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia is the platelet equivalent of hemolytic disease of the newborn, and it develops as a result of maternal alloimmunization to fetal platelet antigens with transplacental transfer of platelet-specific antibody and subsequent platelet destruction. An affected infant often manifests generalized petechiae or ecchymosis over the presenting fetal part, hemorrhage into the viscera, and bleeding after circumcision or venipuncture can also occur. The most serious complication of fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia is intracranial hemorrhage, and that can occur in about 15% of infants that have platelet counts of less than 50,000. Fetal intracranial hemorrhage due to fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia can occur in utero, and one half, that's about 52%, can be detected by ultrasound before the onset of labor. The recurrence risk for fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia is extremely high and approaches 100% in cases where the HPA1A antibody has been identified if the subsequent sibling also carries that pertinent antigen on the platelet itself. All right, when we come back, let's talk about the specific management of maternal thrombocytopenia. For management, women with gestational thrombocytopenia do not require any additional testing or specialized care except follow-up platelet counts. Now, if the diagnosis is made during the antepartum period, expert opinion suggests that a platelet count can be checked weekly starting as early as 34 weeks of gestation. After childbirth, the platelet count should be repeated at one to three months postpartum to determine if resolution of the thrombocytopenia has occurred. Now, in patients with preeclampsia and thrombocytopenia, platelet transfusion occasionally are needed to improve hemostasis in those with platelet counts less than 50,000. However, remember that transfusions are less effective in these women because of accelerated platelet destruction. So, platelet transfusions are best reserved for patients with thrombocytopenia who have active bleeding in the setting of preeclampsia. Now, the difference is in women who are scheduled to undergo C-section. Consensus guidelines 
guidelines recommends platelet transfusions to increase the maternal platelet count to more than 50,000 before major surgery. Platelet counts often decrease for 24 to 48 hours after birth, but they're followed by a rapid recovery. Most patients will achieve a platelet count greater than 100,000 within two to six days postpartum. Okay, well, let's talk about management of maternal ITP. There's no evidence for a specific platelet threshold at which pregnant women with ITP should be treated. But treatment is initiated when the platelet has symptomatic bleeding or when platelet counts fall below 30,000 to increase platelet counts to a level that's considered safe for certain procedures. For example, for an epidural, 80,000 platelet count is recommended. And of course, for cesarean delivery, it's 50,000. Now, corticosteroids, intravenous immunoglobulin G, or both, are considered the first-line treatments for maternal ITP. Now, although either approach is acceptable, it's expert opinion that corticosteroids be the standard of treatment for ITP for up to 21 days. Prednisone is considered the preferred medication for ITP in pregnancy. Now, although there's few data to distinguish management of ITP in pregnant and non-pregnant women, the consensus recommendation in pregnancy is to use a prednisone dose of 10 to 20 milligrams per day and then adjust it to the minimum dose that produces an adequate platelet response. An initial response usually occurs within about 4 to 14 days, but it reaches a peak of anywhere from 1 to 4 weeks. Now, it's recommended that corticosteroids be given for at least 21 days, then taper it off. The dosage can then be tapered until reaching the lowest dosage required to maintain and keep platelet counts that prevent major bleeding. Lastly, there is no evidence that cesarean delivery is safer than vaginal delivery for the fetus with maternal thrombocytopenia due to ITP. Multiple observational studies have evaluated more than 800 neonates born to women with ITP and observed the rate of intracranial hemorrhage to be less than 1% and hemorrhagic complications in infants with thrombocytopenia are unrelated to the mode of delivery. Most neonatal hemorrhages occur 24 to 48 hours after birth at the nadir of platelet count. Now, given the very low risk of serious neonatal hemorrhage, the mode of delivery in pregnancies complicated by ITP should be determined only on obstetric considerations alone and not on the maternal platelet level. Remember that there's no maternal test or clinical characteristic that reliably can predict the severity of thrombocytopenia in infants born to women with ITP, and there's no evidence to support the routine use of intrapartum fetal platelet counts. All right, now we have to make a quick clarification here because we just said that C-section does not improve or reduce bleeding complications in the neonate with maternal ITP. But the management for fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia is a little different. So listen to this. The optimal management of fetuses at risk for fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia, that's those testing positive for the incompatible antigen or those whose fathers are homozygous for the antigen, it remains uncertain. Now, the management decisions for these cases should be individualized. Labor and vaginal delivery are not contraindicated for fetuses with platelet counts greater than 50,000 when they are at risk of fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia. But a C-section is recommended for those with platelet counts below this level. 
delivery should be accomplished in a setting equipped to adequately care for a neonate with severe thrombocytopenia. All right, as we wrap up this podcast, remember that gestational thrombocytopenia is responsible for 80% of maternal thrombocytopenic episodes, and this is usually minor. The second most common etiology is severe preeclampsia. Alloimmune causes include ITP and the more fetal-affecting neonatal fetal alloimmune thrombocytopenia. Well, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.